watched a movie with some friends last night. Maybe we'll start it right there. Okay. You and watched a movie with yeah, some friends? Yeah, it was friends. kind of a spur of the moment. Somebody invited me over and we watched this movie that I've seen before. And there was a scene in it. And it's a recent movie. It's not like, you know, you know how you watch movies from like the 70s or something like that. And there's a lot of cringe that you have yeah. to look past. And, yeah. you know. It, and, Depending on the movie. There's I mean, this like, you know, you go back far enough in time and you can almost forgive everything because, you know, it's a foreign country. This is past is a foreign country idea. Right, right, right. right. And, and, and then there's like stuff which is released this year. And if it's like racist or sexist, it gets no pass at all. Right. And it seems to me there's this, there's this like uncanny valley in between, like, <laughs> you know, like movies from the 90s or the 80s even. Right. I mean, but, but this is a relatively recent movie. Which, in light of the sexual harassment scandals, mm. there was a part in it which involved like a. It was a guy who was attracted to his therapist, but was acting as, you know, assuming they were in a relationship, you know, and talking. It was just, it, boy, I realized that I, I personally was experiencing that differently because of these revelations than I would have before. Interesting. It's not that I wouldn't have been able to identify, like, analytically that there were some, like, sexism problems with that or that it could be. I, I just felt it differently. You know, it's, this just shows the the imprint that recent events or can have on us or our histories can have on us. And right. you know, I don't know. I, that would just explain it was a, it was an emotional reaction, not so much like an analytical one. And I mean, that's, that's great, right? To the, to the yeah. extent that's happening to a lot of people, I think it's going to continue to bring these kind of um, pieces of discourse into the conversation. So yeah, even, even if like you were not meant to think that it was okay in the context of the film, right? Right. You were not meant to think that this is okay, but but you also, you were meant to laugh at it. And, mm-hmm. and the emotional reaction seeing it again was, boy, that's not funny. Like, mm-hmm. that's, like, bad. And it would be interesting, too, to talk to the person who, who made the, the movie or the TV show or, or the, whatever it is you're yeah. encountering, right? And say, like, so what were you really trying to accomplish there? And would you really do that again? Like, do you think that really now would you, the, the, the you that is the now you, would you, would you do that? Right. Because right. you're... Even even if it helped you accomplish a thing you sought to accomplish, it's accomplishing this other thing too. Now, yeah. which is it's yeah. making me go, huh? And <laughs> really? Um, and is that what you want? Speaking of emotional reactions to things, I also just finished. So I, you know, I've been on an Audible kick, mm. and and our colleague Mar- Marissa Broderon, you know, got me on the on the Audible train and she is a big Audible user, and for it sure. has really <laughs> injected a tremendous. Sarah, we'll get to your paper. Don't worry. No, 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 I'm, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> uh, and it has, it has uh, um, energized my, my reading of books, you know, even though I'm listening to, to most of them. I have a combination now. I read certain kinds of things and listen, listen to others. Cool. And, and part of my problem is as an older dude especially, but mm. this was true even when I was a young dude, I was never good at staying up late. Like after 8 o'clock, if I tried to do, you know, when I was in math, whatever, like nothing was getting done because mm. I was just – I'd fall asleep. Um, and it's not like narcolepsy or any similar thing. It's just like I, my brain doesn't work as well. And, and so if I read at night, I'll fall asleep. But hmm. I have all this found time now when I can just kind of turn on at a, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. Or at night when I might fall asleep, I can actually listen to something. And it, and it works. I'm listening to all kinds of great things. Awesome. So, so I just uh, finished um, Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, uh-huh. which is – have you read this book, Joe? Yes. I mean I, I feel like – like A long time ago. Yeah, I, I cannot believe – that I've never read Virginia Woolf. And I'd spent, I've, mean, I've been meaning to do it for a long time, but you know, life, et cetera, et cetera. Sarah, you've read this book? Not that one. I've read others. Yeah. So first of all, she's amazing. Like this is like, this may be... Uh, I, can, I can agree with that 110%. I mean, not since, not since reading Infinite Jest have I, have I been as affected by a book as I was by 
uh, Mrs. Dalloway. Mm -hmm. And so this is relevant to the conversation we were just having because immediately on finishing that, I was like going through and finding like what are some neglected um, genres that, you know, would be, I I was looking for kind of a fun read after that because I found it so overwhelming in a way. And I don't really read, you know, I'm a space guy, but I don't really read science fiction um, I like science fiction movies. I like it. So I've been, like, what, what is like a really great example of science fiction um, that I haven't read before that would be good? So I was turned, I was turned on to these various lists and I finally was turned on to Robert Heinlein's uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Mm, very good book. Um, mm-hmm. I cannot stand it so far. <laughs> and, 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 uh, it, so I, I'm only a little bit into it. I maybe, uh, you know, um, probably like uh, 10% the way into it. And I cannot get past the sexism. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it is very much a product of its time. And it, what, what I think the reason why I think it's a good book is because you have to you have to kind of reverse engineer to get yourself to be back in the time when a person would be reading it as a recent book and thinking about the future and then and right and then sort <laughs> right. of slingshot yourself from that into right. this alternative thing that he imagines. But it's sort of like in a way it's it's um. It's almost like the science fiction that's alternative past, like yeah. alternative history. Right. But it's a it's alternative history future. Yeah. It's like this game uh, Fallout 4 that was so popular where there was like this 1950s post-nuclear future. Right. So the, if, if the bombs had dropped in the 1950s, what would the what would the 2100s be like? I don't know. I didn't play right. through the game. But uh, but this idea that like there's this like 1950s culture in this kind of futuristic landscape. But I haven't read that in, again, a very, very long time. Yeah. I think I, first, I think I read that book in college. Yeah, I feel like all I remember from it is the word grok. Well, this is so, Sarah. You, I mean, that was one of the most amazing things to me. I'm reading it because I use the word grok all the time, yeah. uh, and mm. I, I think I picked it up in like you know in techie circles, right? Right. I, I guess I never really realized the etymology of it, but like I use that all the time, and I realized, wait, it probably came from here. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it did. Yeah. I guess it did. So I don't know what I would think if I picked it up today. Maybe the maybe the it sounds like what you're saying is um, that there's a a sexism facet to it that's just like really prominent and really awful and i think it's in relief from reading mrs dalloway Mm. you see because the the idea that you'll forgive something for being a product of its time right falls away after you have had the experience of reading that novel by virginia wolf and other things that she's written because there were people who were woke you know to this stuff and um and it's not just like he's not just writing a book about his time and and being faithful to social hierarchies at his time, it's like the the lack of imagination about mm. social progress is just stunning. Now and again, like I don't know if if I read on in the book, I'll find out there's some reason for these hierarchies, and and it kind of plays with them in interesting ways. And so I'm not I may I may finish it. So so maybe I'll find out that I'm wrong about it. But like, and it's the opposite of like uh, uh, of Wolf in so many ways. Like there's no. You know, it's very dialogue driven. There's like no interior lives for mm. any of the characters so far. Mm. So they have no like self-consciousness about these hierarchies. It's just, it's it's maddening. Mm. Like you just want to like I just want to strangle him when I'm listening to it. And I, and you know, you know me, I'm, a, I'm usually a very generous consumer of, of art because I really like I want to know what you're saying. I want to know what your thoughts are. And I'm not going to be judgmental about those thoughts so long as you present them authentically and interestingly. Um, but I cannot get past it. I've never had this reaction to a book hmm. before in this way. So anyway. You're making me want to reread it. Well, kind of. <laughs> see, Sarah, that maybe this should be episode one of the of the Oral Argument Book Club. <laughs> you read Stranger in a Strange Land? Yes. Yeah, okay. But again, like long ago. And did you, do you remember at the time whether you had a, 
Like you were I thinking, boy, this is literally sexist. like don't remember anything else about it. I can't, I can't remember my feelings about it. Yeah. Like I don't even have a general sense of, of if I liked it or not, you know? Yeah. Huh. Bad memory for. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I feel like I do too. Cause I, especially for movies. I mean, I'll remember the ones that are the most meaningful to me, but, but like looking back and thinking about like what happened, if I had to recall the plot of some random movie, yeah, I, I just cannot do it. We consume a lot of culture and a lot of it is, um, a lot of it bears a, a, a not minor resemblance to a lot of other of it. I mean, it's, you know, because it's, we're kind of swimming in all this stuff all the time anyway. So, uh, I think that's why it can be hard to pull out a strand that's, ah, yeah, that was that movie or that painting yeah. or that song or that book or that whatever. But they certainly constitute us, right? I mean, that that's kind of the point mm-hmm. I was trying to make, right, is that, that I'm just, after reading Mrs. Dalloway, I'm a different person than I was before. Yeah. And usually you don't recognize that. Like, you watch a movie, it's affecting, but then you go on with it. Right. But, like, it was you so switched affecting. switched to something so different, like, so right. different on a very important facet of Wolf's work. Exactly. That, yeah. Yeah. And, and so... Now, this is actually a bridge to Sarah's paper. Mm. So we've got Sarah Schindler on. Yes. Hi. Who is the, <laughs> as, as far as I'm concerned, the president of the University of Maine. Mm, nice. <laughs> is that right? Is that right, Sarah? Are you now the president of the university? I, I'm not, but okay. thanks. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you, you are a, a professor at the University of Maine. I am. Um, I, I would say a decorated professor at the University of Maine. Um, okay. Thank you. Well, because you've gotten all kinds of plaudits, you've done excellent work, you're, you know, you're well known, uh, you uh, recently, and I think this work uh, was partly um, pursued as part of your fellowship at Princeton in the LAPA program. Yes, that's correct. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm I'm just saying there's been a meteoric rise. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'm also now the associate dean for research. So that's my newest um, title. Yeah, which is pretty exciting. And you're the perfect choice for that. Yeah. Hey, thanks. I was going to say this is a bridge because so we're recording this on Saturday, the same day as because it happened late last night. This big tax bill that the GOP just passed and everything, and there's all the, and the, the Flynn uh, indictment was on, uh, or the information and, and plea was on was on Friday. It was just yesterday, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, and so I was like, oh, boy, this this reading here about these um, uh, these popos, as we'll call them. As, as they have been called, and as you refer to them in the paper, which are... Right. Uh, she, she called uh, them that. <laughs> well, she called them that, but also San Francisco calls them that, right? This Correct. is not your yeah. name, right? Um, no, no, no. I did not make the name up. Mm-mm. But these these are these are like privately owned spaces which have been o- opened up to the public. We'll get into this in a second. But like, I was like, ah, oh, I'm just going to read this. I'm going to think about like land use. I'm going to think about the one of my favorite things, the public-private distinction. You know, this is, which I think is like core to law. Yeah. You know? And uh, this is going to be great because I'm going to be able to... Just think about stuff I love thinking about again. And what does Sarah do? What does she make as one of her key examples <laughs> in this piece? Um, a, yeah, a, a privately owned, publicly open space in Trump Tower. Oh, my God. It's in the first paragraph. <laughs> Not only that, but she talks about the bad behavior of the Trump organization with respect to this popo. <laughs> With which, I, with which I cannot disagree, but like I did not want to think about this. Right. So, um, so Sarah, I blame you for my bad mood. No, I don't. I'm uh, sorry. So, <laughs> uh, well, so all right. So I've talked for a very long time about stuff which is meaningful only to me, probably. But I want to hear from you now, Sarah. Tell us what this paper is about. Go. Um, sure. So, <laughs> oh my God, we, we, we normally don't do that to our World's guests. Worst <laughs> segue to the guest. Oh my goodness, <laughs> Joe. Do you want to? Do you want to say anything? Um. I'm just I'm just gobsmacked by the horror of what you just did. We're 
we're old friends. <laughs> <laughs> my thought, yeah, we are all friends. And so, this, but True. my thought is, if we talk long enough and we filibuster and don't let Sarah talk, we'll we'll elicit. Remember that one listener or non-listener who left us a bad review and said, you know, you should let the guest talk, you jerks, kind of thing. You remember that a long time ago? <laughs> Maybe we'll get that person again. So anyway. All right, but we'll turn it over love, to you, Sam. I love being a guest because I like listening to you talk. I think you guys have great insight. And I, I feel like my papers and ideas always get better after talking to you. So. Oh, wonderful. Well, yeah. you, just, just as we were talking about other aspects of culture, your papers change us, Sarah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, this is that. That's, you know, I've said it in a funny way, but it's definitely true. I mean, like, you know, that's one of the joys of being in academia. You are changed by the thoughts of your friends and colleagues. Mm-hmm. So, so let me do this. Um, the... You know, Christian mentioned the sort of public, public and private as as two axes that that you might use to think about a lot of different things in the law, um, and to take it to more uh, everyday uh, common experience. And people grow up in various places, various towns and cities and whatnot. You know, public roads and public parks are things that a lot of us. Uh, who've grown up here in the United States have the experience of. I won't speak for other places because I didn't grow up other places. I grew up here. Um, so this notion of of a public park uh, as a place that is the public's place, right? It's It belongs to us. Uh, we get to go there. Uh, we're taking care of it. Uh, there's, a, there's a new, for example, there's a new park in my neighborhood um, that a friend of ours helped um, – uh, create and uh, it's it's been great to have this new public space of and a public park and so to hear to learn that there are privately owned spaces that are also in a way that we could think of as public parks uh, is interesting um, and surprising um, so what so help us learn just about the space first and then we can think about the ways in which, because it seems to occupy this sort of category that straddles two things that are more common, uh, privately owned private space and publicly owned public space. Um, but but just help us f- learn more about the phenomenon. Where is it going on and why? Sure. So I guess the first thing I would say is um, this sort of mixing of private and public in the context of parks isn't totally new. So even a lot of our publicly owned public parks have been privatized in some way. Um, either through their management or through their operations. So, you know, you mentioned your friend helped form this new park in your neighborhood, right? Um, Perhaps that involved private donations, um, creating a friends of the park group, things like this. So we've already seen a lot of privatization of truly public spaces, you know, with the advent of of food kiosks in public parks, or um, even with the city deciding to charge people to rent out you know, picnic tables and things like this. But what I focus on in the paper are, as you said, these popos, these privately owned public spaces that are a a distinct sort of specific thing. Um, They primarily exist in bigger cities, although um, I've seen some smaller, smaller cities are also experimenting with them and using them. So the idea is um, they're usually created in the context of some sort of exchange with a developer. So a developer wants to build a new big let's say, office building, but it could also be a residential building in an urban area. And, um, you know, usually when those sort of land use decisions are being made, the city has an opportunity to get things from the developer. So the two primary ways that these popos are created um, are generally either through incentive zoning or through conditional use permitting. So these are sort of, you know, land use wonky terms. But the idea behind incentive zoning is 
the city might have some sort of uh, designated sort of preset um, legislative type determination where, uh, you know, okay, generally you can only build to X, you know, stories high, but if you provide certain additional things like a privately owned public space on site, we'll let you build to X plus three stories high, something like that. Um, so you can build a bigger building than you would otherwise be permitted to do under the zoning if you provide this POPOs in exchange for that. Uh, the conditional use permit way is a more individualized determination. So um, a developer can only build, you know, a commercial building or, or a commercial building of a certain size in a given location if they get um, the, uh, the approval, the discretionary approval of the, the city council or the planning department or the planning board. And so um, oftentimes that's an individualized deal making where the city will say, okay, we'll give you the permit to do this building, but you have to give us X, Y, and Z. And one of those things might be um, a privately owned public open space. Not unlike people have to do with, so conditional use permits are, are written into the zoning ordinance. And, and uh, so, so for example, um, in a residential area, um, there are a number of uses you can make as of right, like, you know, building a single family home, depending, you know, if you're in that kind of area or a duplex, if it's that kind of area. But then there are usually conditional uses like running an in-home daycare where it can be allowed, but only if you basically take your proposal to the, um, usually the, either the zoning board of adjustment or the planning commission. And, and they will kind of look at your plan and they will evaluate it against maybe correct if there are criteria in the in the um, in the ordinance for that kind of conditional use permit, they'll they'll look at that, right? right. Do I have that right, Sarah? I mean, this is I haven't taught land use in a few years, but that, yeah, that's, my, that's, right. that's my memory. And, yeah. and basically, the the conditions are usually supposed to address some sort of harm that the project will impose on the community, right? The reason that it's only permitted conditionally instead of as of right is because the idea is, well, this is a more intense use, so we know there are certain things it's going to do that are going to, you know. Um, visit some sort of harm on the community. So we want to make sure that those harms are being balanced out by the conditions we attach. And that, that point of balancing uh, benefits and burdens is, it sounds like it's really, and I just think it's, it's probably obvious to the listener, but I think it's worth making explicit if it's, if I'm right about this, that, that really this entire, the, the entire conversation, all of it about, about zoning and different ways to establish different requirements and uh, conditional or, or as of right and all these other things. The whole thing is shot through with the notion that changes in use from some baseline are going to involve benefits and burdens for all kinds of people, both the owner and, and the people not the owner in the vicinity of the owner, and that therefore um, figuring out how best to proceed ought to take into account those benefits and burdens and how they're changing for people. And so if you're having that conversation about the benefits and the burdens, you're talking about one of the most basic and important things about all of what's happening, right? It's not an aside. It's not an extra. It's like the heart of the matter in a way. Yep. And that's sort of the idea behind incentive zoning, the first method, and I would say probably the more common method of creating these popos. Um, the idea originally when, when popos first came to mind for, for some city planners was, all right, well, we're allowing greater density. So greater density is going to block light and air. Um, and so we want to make sure we're providing open space to sort of provide access to light and air and to sort of counter the negative effects of that density to provide, um, areas of lower density, uh, within the same vicinity. So 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Sort of trying to balance the benefits and burden. Yeah, Sarah, just why don't you just tell us, give us a few like concrete examples of of some popos so we can kind of understand their range. I mean, you do so in the paper, we'll link up the paper and everything, but maybe for people who haven't looked at it, yeah. Definitely. So, um, you know, so the Trump Tower example, uh, the popos there is a garden that's actually inside and on the upper floors of, of the building. So it's on the fourth and fifth floors, I believe. And it's, you know, it's just a little garden area. There's a tree that I've seen pictures of it being dead at certain times in the past. Um, and there's, you know, some seating. It makes me, it makes me think of Return of the King and the, um, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so just before you go to the other example. So yeah. when, when you say Popo and there's one on the fourth or fifth floor, that means that anyone in the public can go there within reasonable hours. And I don't know what the rules are for that, but like if we were in New York, you and I could go together there right now, right? Yes. Well, ostensibly we should be able to, Right. Now, and this will get into other things I'm sure we'll talk about, but while Trump was running for president, for example, um, the building was often closed off to members of the public if he was having some sort of, um, you know, event there, campaign event. So um, so this raises some questions. But yes, generally, the idea is that if the building is open during the hours it's open, any member of the public should be able to go in, go up the elevator, go up the escalator to the fourth or fifth floor and go and take advantage of this garden. But of course, you know, there are a few caveats. You have to know it exists and you have to know where to find it and you have to feel comfortable walking into Trump Tower and getting there. So that's an example of what might be thought of as a a harder to find or maybe a more exclusionary popos. Um, Others of them, though, are located on the ground floor of of corporate buildings. So there was one that I used to go to and eat my lunch at a lot when I was a lawyer in San Francisco um, that it was just a building around the corner from my building and it had a big, you know, sort of glass enclosed, uh, atrium in the ground floor, sort of the entryway of this building. So anyone could just walk in the glass doors and sit in this atrium. But then if you wanted to access the upper floors of that building, then you would have to go past security and over and up, um, into the elevators. No, it sounds like the private owners of, who are developing these properties um, and are agreeing to include um, a popos in what they're doing. Um, th- my guess is they, either consciously or not, but but their their inclination would probably be to to the greatest degree possible uh, ha- have this thing be perceived by the people who are in the building on a regular basis to perceive it as, a, as an amenity of the building, like for the people in the building and not at much more so than for the general public. Do, do, is that a sensible? Which is why, and just to add to that, which is why they might prefer that over what seems like a similar alternative, which is, okay, we're going to build this building. It has some costs and as an, and in, in order to get the permit, you're going to have to dedicate this space to the public, right? Which is a transfer from the private party to the public as an owner. So sometimes when a developer develops a subdivision, they have to like dedicate a park to the city and that becomes like a city park or something like that. And this is an alternative for that. And maybe developers prefer it for the reasons that you're now giving, Joe. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought that they might actively prefer it on that basis. I was just thinking like, you know, whether, even if that weren't true, once they've agreed to it, it seems to me that, that they're going to think with every choice we make, about how to design it, how to structure it, um, it to the degree that it, it, the people who are in the building perceive it to be a more pleasant building for them, that makes me happier as a person who's creating the building, right? Yeah, and that, that's definitely right. And so I always, um, so I actually first started talking about this um, Popo's in my land use class, and I always use this one example. Of, I believe it's a building in Seattle, and in order to get an extra floor on the building, they put 
a garden on like the, you know, 45th floor or something. <laughs> and so again, even though that's technically public space, who's going to be the most likely to use that garden to know about it? People in the building, right? So I think you're right, Joe, that definitely building owners are going to sell these kind of amenities to their tenants as something for them to enjoy and perhaps downplay the the fact that anyone uh, technically has access to these spaces. And and so some other examples, right? I mean, I, I assume there are some outdoor courtyards and, and places adjacent. Yeah, the, I think probably the most famous example is Zuccotti Park, um, where Occupy Wall Street began. Um, that's actually a popos, right? So that was a, a privately owned public space, a, a, looked like a park, looked like a public park, but it was owned by um, the, the private building uh, just right across the street. So it wasn't dedicated to the public using Christian's earlier scenario where to develop a building, you say, we're going to make you create a publicly owned public space. Instead, it's we're going to you, you can own it still, but you're agreeing that it's going to be a publicly owned, publicly accessible space in the nature of a covenant or easement or. And that looks contract. like a park. I mean, it's a. That's right. And, and, you know, of course, some cities also prefer this method because it's one less park that they have to maintain, um, enforce, uh, clean up, you know, all of those duties fall on the private owners as opposed to on the city. And the city's inclination, in, as you were just describing, this is another inclination where the so, so part of what we seem to be talking about here is who's going to perceive the resulting space as an amenity for whom. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're agreeing that it's going to exist, but that's, that's barely the beginning of a conversation about how it will be experienced by the people who might be in it. Definitely. Let's maybe organize it just a little bit in, in terms of, um, let's do a two by two box, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) And, and because I think it, it helps to highlight what Sarah's talking about. I think part of what your paper does, and you know, I heard an earlier version of this a while ago, uh, presented at a conference and, and, and we talked about it then, but now I think I understand it better as kind of spectrumizing these, these dimensions, you mm. know, and complicating the, the lines. So, but, but this may help the listeners also kind of locate these, this, uh, this phenomenon within the world of, of, of amenities that they understand. So, uh, so, so on one dimension, you've got ownership, public or private, right? So either public owns the land or, or a private entity owns the land. On the other dimension, you have access, right? The public has a right of access or there is just a, um, or the public doesn't, and it's a private access. So, Privately owned private access are things that people are familiar with. These are things like office buildings, houses, you know, basically private owners who who are able to set permissions. And um, uh, publicly owned public access, these are public parks, things like that, right? But there's also this kind of public-private. So publicly owned private access seems like more like, you know, government built – like I can't just walk into CIA headquarters and go to any office I want to, right? There are the, – the government run – owns that uh, space, but but runs it in a proprietary way, right? It's not open to the public, right? Mm-hmm. Sarah, you, this is almost like a rule four paper in a way, mm-hmm. right? I mean, because you're, you're, you know, you're saying, hey, people are forgotten about, or they have, you point to other literature, right? But, you, but you're kind of exploring the, the phenomenon occurring this other kind of strange box of, of privately owned space to which there is a right of public access. And, and and distinguishing that from and this is where some of the spectrumization comes in, right? Distinguishing that from privately owned space, which is generally open to the public, but kind of at the pleasure of the private entity. These are so-called public accommodations, where so things like stores, yeah, where anti-discrimination laws typically kick in. Like if yeah. you open your doors to the public, you can't really close them just to people of a particular race. So stores, you know, soda fountains, movie theaters, uh, retail, all of these are like 
all the space and malls, you know, which is another example, which we'll probably get into more, right? Um, right. Mm-hmm. But these are these and if are we're not, not thinking that. about real property, um, things like transportation modalities. I right. mean, trains, buses, planes. Right. These are they're privately owned, but their pu- their common carriage is another way to refer to this sort of public access norm. Right. Uh, for commerce and 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 another kind of way to see some of the complications and the divisions of these lines between between public and private, and so. You know, I, I, I kind of wanted to start. Uh, I know we're not starting, but I kind of wanted to at least <laughs> at least get us to that to that point where we can see what's really special about these, and that's a, kind of an easy, quick way to see what's special about this about this category. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And I, you know, I, I would say to Christian, I originally had a box in an earlier draft based on a conversation we had, and I it somehow along the way got out of my paper. That, and now I'm thinking. I want it back in. <laughs> you do not. No, no, you do not. You know, most of the conversations I have lead to things which eventually are dropped. So that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the ideas are still there. <laughs> that's that's what I'll hold on to. That's what I'll hold on to. But but no, but I do think it helps to clarify, right, that like, yeah. okay, so there's a separate category. Maybe it should be governed separately. Maybe there should be separate rules of governance. And um, but then you point out these kind of complexities, right, of uh, yeah, it's it's like publicly available, but it's not it's not always publicly available. And is there? And, and the paper I think really takes the position that we should make these work better by being you know more open to the public. There should be some more. Uh, uh, there should be greater uh, public regulation at the front end of these things in order to achieve these what you call publicization or publicization benefits of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so, where are we getting the metric for better, Sarah? When we think about like, are these functioning right. as well as we want them to? It sounds like there 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 could be implicitly, um, and you're I think in a way making much more explicit, and this is extremely valuable. I think um, to to say, you know, what are the norms for publicly owned public open spaces, and how should they inform whether we think these privately owned publicly open spaces are performing adequately. Yeah, that, that's that's right. So the question of value is obviously very, um, you know, <laughs> a hard question to, to analyze. And I, you know, in the paper, I have some suggestions for some empirical work that could be done here, be that, you know, interviewing um, or surveying people within a community, what they think about the space, how they've used it, thinking about surveying folks in the city council or, or the planning department. But right, so I start by by thinking about you know how and why do we value truly public space, right? Publicly owned public space, and there's a lot of literature about that. You know, the value of of public parks and of the public forum, and how this is a you know these are places where we can engage with diverse types of strangers and encounter different opinions and and um, and different types of people than those we're used to interacting with. You know, the value of a third place. Yeah, tell us more. Tell, you, you mind going into that just a little bit more because this is I love this idea. The um, third place, sure. yeah, because mine yeah. mine has recently been stolen from me by. <laughs> oh. oh, the coffee shop idea. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So, so right. So the third place is the idea is that we've got our first place and our second place, which are our homes and our offices. Um, but the third place is is the the sort of public space where we're able to interact with other people, um, our our public forum, uh, and so you know, in, in traditional towns, this might have been a town square. Um, now it might be Christian's favorite coffee shop where he goes and, you know, interacts with members of his community in a lot of suburban areas. It might be, you know, the parking lot of the shopping center because there aren't a lot of traditional public spaces in, in many suburbs or, or the interior of the mall or the interior of the mall. That's right. Uh, and so this is the idea of the third space. And, and again, there's, there's literature about the value of these spaces and, and, um, and why they're important. 
that's where I met one of my best friends at the coffee shop, like who I didn't know before, ended up like yep. living with us for a semester. And, and we shared diverse experiences. You know, he, his background was very different from mine. And like, I'm a different person, hearkening back to the beginning of our conversation because of that interaction. Right. And I've had numerous interactions like that in that coffee shop and in other third places, as I know that you have, Sarah, right? You just run into people that you wouldn't run into in your workplace, that second place. And you cert- and they're certainly not like your family members in that first place, right? You're, you're kind of forced together. And even malls do that, right? You're passing people in the mall. You may be shopping for the same thing. You're otherwise different, but you're shopping for the same CD or the same dress or the same this or the same that, or you're, you're sharing a frustration about how slow the line is moving at a fast food place. And like all of these, like there, there's an implicit, um, uh, conception of the good life, which includes these kinds of interactions. And that's what I guess this literature is really talking about with this third place. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So there's a lot of, of literature out there on the benefits of having these sort of truly public spaces. Um, but the sort of aside I want to mention here is that I think we we, we sometimes uh, idealize or romanticize this idea of, of public space. For every story like Christian's, where you meet your best friend who's very different from you at a coffee shop, there are many stories of, you know, <laughs> many people in the third places, they don't actually interact with other strangers. And even many publicly owned public spaces wind up being exclusionary uh, and wind up sort of being designed in such a way to discourage those types of interactions between people from different communities. And going back to Joe's point about transportation, you know, our transportation networks make it difficult for people from truly different backgrounds often to um, access the same public spaces. So I just want to sort of put that out there as, as we need to be careful when we romanticize the value um, or, or what we gain from public space. I do think it's a lot of it is true, but there is sort of this background of, well, um, especially in the way our cities are created today, it's not always um, this sort of happy place where everyone is included. And even, you know, if, even if you look back to sort of like Greek times with, with their sort of public space, you know, slaves were excluded, women were excluded. So, so this isn't, it hasn't always been, you know, everyone interacting with everyone in these spaces. Yeah. And that's replicated in these, in these um, privately owned spaces, right? Where, the, where architecture or rules or hiddenness like serve to kind of filter out and create the, the constituents of this, of this privately owned public space, whether they are just the people who are happen to work in the building or if they're just quote unquote, the right kind of people. And you go through the, and this harkens back to your, you, you, the, the last thing we had you on to talk about, right? The, uh, the piece about architectural exclusion in cities and discrimination, right? Um, yes. And 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 you so do you want to go through a few of those ways that the that these privately owned spaces do that kind of filtering out, or they you know, or they de-romanticize the space that <laughs> people had in mind? Sure. So as, as you pointed out, there's sort of two ways that this can be done: either through um, design or through architecture, um, and then through through use and enforcement. So in terms of design, you know, some of these spaces, especially when they were first being created, were intentionally created to be dead spaces. So they might be created without any seating or without any um, shade. Maybe they were created with, you know, a fence around them and no signage. So people wouldn't know just by looking at them that they were public. Um, The spaces that are designed, like in Trump Tower, to be on upper floors um, of buildings or, or located... Uh, in such a way that you have to pass through security gate to get to the spaces. Um, that's exclusionary because, again, first of all, not everyone's going to know they're there, but also not everyone's going to feel comfortable 
you know, walking into an office building, going up to a security guard and saying, hey, I want to use the public space on the fourth floor. Um, and then often these security guards might say, all right, well, give us your name. Let us see your ID, you know, things like this that, again, can can feel quite exclusionary to certain people who don't feel comfortable giving that information or who don't have an ID. And, and quite different, exclusionary in a way, because quite different from what it would be like to walk into a public park in their town. I mean, it's if yeah. someone says, well, show me your ID and what's your name and why do you want to be here? And I'll, you don't have to do that to go. I mean, at least not in the town I grew up in. You don't have to do that to go to the park. Just wait, Joe. Right. Fair enough. It just feels weird. Like, why do you want to know those things? I'm just here to use the the park on the fourth floor. Right. Um, Right. Well, yeah, because it's in it's in it's in a situation where, I mean, uh, on behalf of the building owner and one can use many other building examples other than the Trump organization. But but you can understand why a building owner who's responsible for maintaining a safe an effective working environment for people who are working at the building, you can understand why they would want to know who's in the park on the fourth floor. Sure. Right. It's not like a public park. So it's, it's, we create these situations where we're trying to get some of the benefit of publicly open space, but it's not the same situation as these other publicly open spaces. So we're, we're not going to get, be able to get the same level of benefit. Right. Especially to the extent that you locate these spaces off the ground floor or behind some sort of gate. Yeah. And, and and we can talk about this later, but in terms of my recommendations for improving these spaces, one thing I think is that that just shouldn't be permissible. Yeah, I agree. Ugh. So that's sort of the design element. And I should say most cities um, or many cities have sort of realized that this is a problem, the design <laughs> problem. And so they're now requiring, you know, a certain number of chairs or different microclimates. So, you know, shade or, or trees or things like this to make them more physically comfortable to pe- to people, to make people want to be there as opposed to just having big expanses of, you know, concrete that don't really encourage gathering. So then the second method of exclusion that I sort of um, focus in on in the, in the paper is exclusion through the discretionary enforcement of rules and norms. In most of these spaces, to the extent they have rules about use, um, and not all of them do, but to the extent they have them, they're created by the, the private building owners or managers um, or the security personnel there. So That means the rules of how you can use these spaces vary dramatically from place to place. I would also note that especially before Occupy Wall Street happened, most of these places didn't have rules for use. So um, with with Zuccotti Park, uh, it was during the Occupy Wall Street movement that the private owner of that space decided to create rules. And those rules included things like no laying down, no tents, you know, no carrying large bags. It's like basically creating rules to to exclude the types of activities that were taking place in in the context of or in conjunction with the Occupy Wall Street movement. So that's part of it. And then also I, I mentioned the, the discretionary enforcement of norms. And so I, I think a lot about norms and especially norms in public space versus private space. And um, again, here I think we can think back to a traditional public park and the types of things you might see happening there. And, you know, again, having lived in San Francisco, you see a lot of crazy things happen in public parks, right? <laughs> but, and, and that's kind of the norm of the space. You expect that when you go there, that you're going to see some like crazy clowns dancing and some, you know, I don't know, half naked people lying around and, you know, people playing music quite loudly and a lot of people like riding their bicycles on the grass, you know, various types of, of activities. And again, you you don't really think twice about it because the norms of the space are such that like, yeah, this is the type of thing that would happen in this public park. 
But within these privately owned public spaces, what I see happening is that the norms that wind up being enforced in those spaces are the norms of the private building to which the popos is attached. So, and again, the, the norm enforcers in these spaces are the private security guards who man or who work in those buildings. You know, I don't know to what extent these private security guards have really thought about their role as norm enforcers or the, the role of norms within these privately owned public spaces as differing from the norms of the purely private space um, behind the guard's desk. But what winds up happening is the norms of the private space get enforced in these ostensibly public spaces. And so they feel very different from truly public spaces. If it's problematic, and I, and I think it is, that the that these popos take on the, the private norms of inclusion and conduct of the buildings, and so they become just extensions of the buildings and therefore fail to serve kind of any conceivable, uh, any reasonably conceivable purpose that these things have, um, that, that that's a problem. But you you don't you can see that that's a problem and yet not conclude that the norms of inclusion and conduct should be those which govern public parks, right? Um, you mean in these spaces, we shouldn't necessarily have the norms of inclusion, right? Right. So so in, in it, just like there can be third places, maybe this should be a third. Maybe this should be a third or fourth thing, right? So uh, well, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and that I mean that raises questions about like why are cities requesting popos in exchange for greater density and and what is the purpose right is the purpose to create is it really just to create more space for light and air or is it to create more public space which encompasses all of the values and benefits of public space that we that we talked about Um, and so again i think that's a question for cities and it's a question for the citizens right what are they what do they think they're getting here you know again if we think about trump tower i don't have the data in front of me but it's in my paper, right? I, I think it was it allowed him to create like 15 more floors or something. I, I can't remember the exact number. But you know, it like whatever it is, it creates immense private value in the private owner because they get to create all this additional purely private space. And like, are we really getting that much value from these popos? Um, again, in, in pure monetary numbers. I mean, I don't know how we I don't know how we actually measure that value. As I mentioned, there there's probably some empirical work to be done there. And the answer to the question, the answer to the question, is this a good trade-off, um, has to be realistic about both sides of the trade-off. I, I want to be cynical, I mean, or not, not, I don't want to be cynical, but I want to be skeptical of the, of the cost-benefit framing. But, yeah. be, but before we get there, I just want to go, uh, before we get to that, the implications of that framing, if we could just go back a second to this, this, uh, this maybe in-between norm and, the, and these purposes. So one of the examples you give in the paper is of some activists, along with an ACLU lawyer, going into an atrium in San Francisco and having, uh, it's not exactly a drum circle, I don't know what, the, but it's musical instruments, loud, loud music, right? It was, well, it was chanting. It was a Balinese chanting ritual mm-hmm. and involved, you know, physical movements and chanting. So uh, you know, maybe you don't have to say that this is, I don't want to say it's a pig in a parlor because uh, Balinese chanting is quite beautiful. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, you may say it's incompatible with that space in a way that, you know, you would say First Amendment values in, in open public parks have, and maybe one of the reasons those First Amendment values have, have uh, forbade government from stopping these kinds of things in public parks uh, is precisely because of the physical character of those parks, right? And, and time, place, and manner is one way of, of seeing, uh, of the way that the law has adapted to uh, allow different sorts of things in different in different places. But so I only say this because when we talk about the purposes of these spaces, I don't think your argument is necessarily that we should, um, we should force any popo that is established 
whether it's an atrium in a building or otherwise, to host these kinds of musical events, right? Right. I, I mean, and, and I think, but, but that's part of the question, right? It's like, yeah. if not, then what are these spaces? They're not trying to replicate true public space. Um, or or they're, I should say, they're not replicating what we think of as true public space. But do they still serve some value? And if so, to whom? And and is that enough, right? Like, are we as as members of a community getting enough in exchange if we can't have our Balinese chanting rituals in these spaces, right? Are there enough places where we can do that? And if the problem is there aren't, then cities need to be creating different types of, of public space and getting different um, amenities in exchange for allowing greater density. Yeah, the problem so. is so multidimensional, isn't it? Because it is. it's about, yeah. uh, because y- you do think that, um, boy, it, it would be nice if the city working with a developer, so just imagine we got a space which is being developed, you know, and it's going to be developed with a skyscraper which is being built. And the city is working with the developer on how its regulations will apply. And one thing that would be really nice is to have an atrium where people who don't necessarily work in the building could come and enjoy that space. Uh, that light and air and have lunch and have conversations and talk with people. And, and so in that way, it's kind of like a public park because it's open to the public. And and you don't have to have bought food in the building in order to have your lunch there. You can bring your sack lunch with you or what have you. That would be nice. But also it would be reasonable for the building to exclude maybe even protests, right? You know, this is maybe not a place where we want, we would want to have protests. Maybe it's not a place where we want to have uh, music. Maybe it's not a place where we would want people to sleep. Mm-hmm. That seems reasonable that you would want the public and the private side to work together to create amenities like that. But but that's very that's it seems to me that that proposition is tied very strongly to the public's um, uh, faithfulness in providing resources for those other activities, places for the homeless to sleep, places for people right. to protest. Right. And, and right. so part of what your paper does is I think it ties together those two kind of public responsibilities. Yeah. And I think the problem is a lot of these cities or my sense is that they feel like, oh, look at all this new public space we have in the form of these popos. Aren't we doing a great job? And the fact is, these are exclusionary spaces. And are we still creating enough truly public space to provide those other functions that you just mentioned, Christian? Right. They're not substitutes. Yeah. Yeah. And the the other concern is, you know, it's not as if the city is saying, all right, here's what we think is acceptable in these spaces. And here's what is not. This is the the private developers are the ones making these decisions and making the enforcement decisions. So um, so it's not consistent. So there's no sort of consistent expectation amongst members of the public of how these spaces can um, or should or must be used. Uh, and so that's why I think the the activists you mentioned, the Rebar Collective, and doing their sort of the interventions in these spaces was really interesting and eye opening because you know it raises questions. So one of the interventions they did was they went to one of these rooftop popos and flew kites. Right. So, you know, you're flying a kite on a rooftop. You're not bothering anyone. But that the security guards had a major problem with that, you know. And of course, they're alleging it's it's a safety concern. And maybe it legitimately is. Um, but again, that's that's these random security guards saying this. The, the security guards have a problem with anything, it seems. I mean, right. I, I, I went I went to the top floor of a building in Houston one time. And 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 decided I would walk down the stairs. This is when I was a grad student, and I, you know I just wanted to because it was a tall building. I walked down the stairs, and that led to basically guns drawn, being escorted by the police because who would take the stairs rather than the elevator? It's very suspicious. So, um, right. so they're, and, you they're, know, they're, and yeah. photographers have been asked to stop filming in these spaces, right? And so, so where is that line of what's reasonable and what's not? And shouldn't the the state or the city have some say in that. Well, they, yeah, and I, I, it seems to me it's extremely hard to argue that they shouldn't. Um, I, I, an important, I, I do think it would be an important question 
um, for practical reasons to, to figure out when they have that role um, and the earlier the better uh, and the, you know, at the front end as well as uh, at any other end, it's it certainly would want them at the front end. Um, what I what I like about the the uh, rebar collective is, and their you know the kite and the Balinese ritual and all that stuff, is that even though, as Christian observed, even though your your the endpoint of your assessment probably will not be, ah, yeah, the norms and rules for this space should be the very same as the ones for a public park, a large public park, um, open air park. Uh, it's still good to kind of disrupt people out of their very facile assumption that, yes. oh, just let the building figure it out. Right. Right. Because yeah. um, I can understand why that might be an untutored, unreflective way to think about the issue the first time you hear about it. Oh, it's located mm-hmm. in the building. The building's going to have a lot of interest in making sure that its use is consistent with the needs of the building. Who knows the needs of the building? The people who run it. Um, so, hey, let them figure it out, right? That's yeah. not the that's not the craziest idea you will hear in a given day. And that's what's so wonderful about these civil disruptions. Like even if you right. don't conclude that the rules should be changed to allow what they do, the fact that they do it is kind of jostling yes, expectations. And it's, and yeah. it's, getting, it's mm-hmm. getting a conversation where there's suddenly there are people at the table who have, who have every right and who need to be at the table and, and the private the, – the building owner – absolutely agrees that they have a right to be at the table, right? Because okay. it's a it might be a privately owned space, but it's a publicly open space. So they right. have to recognize once that jostling and, and disruption happens, they have, oh, okay, I guess you guys really do have to be able to participate in this conversation about what our rules are going to be. Uh, mm-hmm. But they need some off-the-rack solutions. This is just tailor-made, it seems to me, for, you know, model rules, model statutes, um, for for baseline understanding of uh, like we can grab some off the rack stuff uh, for our next developer to say you know this is the kind of stuff you need to do you need to have public participation in committees that that establish the rules for the space for example right and that's and, and that's another concern that I have or sort of a cr- critique that I have of the existing sort of structure of popos is that we've got a democracy deficit because people, the public is is not involved in the creation of those rules, right? The rules for the use of the space. I guess we could argue that we have a voice in whether or not popos exist in our community, right? Because um, most of these are done, as I said, through some sort of incentive zoning scheme. So there are popos ordinances within the given city. So we have a, a, a say in the creation of that original ordinance, but not in how the spaces are used, what the rules of the space look like. Um, or how the norms in the space are enforced. And the use is critical because the whole theory, again, to go back to the beginning of the conversation, the whole theory here is that when we think about the benefits and the burdens of this development, it's going to burden use in in certain respects. So we need a benefit to use in certain respects. It's patently inadequate to say, well, the public participates in whether these things exist. This is where I'm skeptical because one way of, of seeing... What's happening here is, yes, by developing in this way, you're, you're imposing some cost or some injury. And, and truly, sometimes that's, that's the case. And, and so in exchange for that cost, we need an offsetting benefit, right? And, and therefore, you know, a popo is one way. There may be other ways, you know, the, the New York has had people contribute to the nearby subway stops and things like that, right, to, to offset the benefit, uh, to offset mm-hmm. the cost of, of your building. But if, if we think about it, um, another way of looking at it is that law 
and the ability to say no is a source of value, right? So, Sarah, as you know, like famously, a lot of uh, of uh, local jurisdictions will will um, zone everything not already developed in at a very low level of zoning in order basically to extract value. Um, by increasing uh, when they have to when they increase the level of zoning, so to permit a development. So if I set my, uh, the, the fact is that a lot of tall buildings and dense structures are of a benefit to the cities in which they exist, right? I mean, a lot. You know, I know Sarah is one who loves density, right, Sarah? I mean, I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, I th- it's it's the most sustainable form of development. Exactly, mm-hmm. and so they actually want these developments, right? Right. Yes. And, and so the, the, the scarcity, yeah. right, to the extent that what the, that, that, that there's a scarce resource here of buildable um, uh, space, it's created by law, right? And the person who's going to get the value from the, uh, from the kind of distribution of that scarcity controls the scarcity, right? And so, it, the, so, so it's, it's an artificial ceiling on development, which is creating the ability to engage in this extraction. But anyway, this whole dance, right, of well, here, here's our limit, but if you do this, then we will increase the limit. And either that's spelled out in law, basically the first method Sarah talked about, the creation of, 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 of the topos, right? Uh, or, or it's not spelled out, but there's some discretion and it sets up a negotiation, which happens within parameters, which is kind of the conditional use. And then there's a third, which is maybe like rezoning or other techniques, which really are at, at the limits of discretion. All of these, like, they're just dances around kind of uh, um, the public and a private developer trying to work, to, yeah, to use a word I hate, synergistically, right, to develop something which which can possibly meet both kinds of needs. Like we want a public park or a public space, but we'd really like to buy it off books, right? We don't want to devel- devote tax dollars to it. It'd be so much nicer if it appeared to be free, right? And so what we'll do is we'll set our you know, we'll, we'll set our requirements lower. We'll create a store of value. The developer now, in order to acquire that value, will have to pay back in the thing that we want, right? And so there's like a transparency problem with that. You know, yeah. Scalia's noted it before in takings cases, right? Um, so there's a transparency problem there. On the other hand, maybe you don't criticize it because this is just a reasonable way to encourage negotiations in the development of the built environment. And the built environment is... You know, once you build it, it's there a long time. There are a lot of consequences. We want to be careful about how we do it, and so maybe negotiations aren't a bad thing, in especially in urban areas. I don't, Sarah. How do you? I know that you know in all this literature too. In what ways skeptical? I guess I haven't heard. Well, because I'm skeptical of the idea that uh, of the framing that says that anytime you want to build above where our zoning limits are, you're imposing a, a cost, right? And it's a cost for which you need to pay benefits. Like the reason we perceive it that way is precisely because we set the the law lower, right? Even though that's actually that lower level of development is not what we really prefer. Now, sometimes it is. Like there are cases where a tall building is going to encourage more people to come into that particular area and it's going to stress local um, transit options and you're going to need to upgrade the subway and everything else. And so you really do want uh, a transfer there. Other times it's just like, you know what, this is a way to get something that we don't that we that would be politically harder to do through taxes and i'm not saying that's a reason to oppose it like unlike scalia i don't necessarily think that you need total transparency on that i think setting up a system of negotiated development which includes public and private amenities is maybe a reasonable way to proceed this is kind of a muddling through way to proceed Uh, but but i'm but i think I'm just uh, like academically, I guess, skeptical of the framing, which says this really is about like getting an offsetting benefit for a cost. Right, does that make yeah. sense? Well, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's right. You're you're identifying one of the things that when I teach land use, I feel like students always sort of focus in on, which is 
well, wait, if the city's going to allow you to build, like, why does the zoning say you can only build to 40 stories? If they're going to allow you to build to 50 stories, then aren't they lying that, you know, and if, if this is based on their police powers and it's based on sort of public health, safety and welfare, and they're setting the level at where they think it should be, then why are they going to allow this incentive zoning? Why are they going to allow taller buildings? Shouldn't the baseline be at that taller level? And so, yeah, so I, I, I mean, Christian, I definitely agree with you. And, and again, I don't think it's easy in, regardless, I don't think it's easy to say um, the, the, the costs and benefits are going to be precisely offset. Now, I, especially when it comes to something like Popo's. Now, I do think in many cases, like you mentioned, you know, needing greater subway access if you're going to bring in more people. Um, I think one way where we see this more clearly is through traffic studies, right? Yeah. So when a new building yeah. is being created, usually a city, especially if it's a big building, they'll request a traffic study and they'll look to see if, you know, the intersection outside the building is, is the level of service at that intersection going to be, you know, dramatically harmed. Right. So let's say it's currently at a level of service like A, which is really good. But with the building, with the traffic projections of the building being built, it's going to be at level of service F. Right. Well, right. then we can clearly see this building is imposing a direct harm and we're going to need to expand that intersection or change the lights or, you know, do something, create another curb cut somewhere else to divert traffic to address that direct harm. And sewer systems and water and other yes. things. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I guess I think those are easier to quantify than something more amorphous like, oh, density blocks light and air. We need more light and air. We need more space for people to be and to interact. You know, it's the trade-off is just inherently harder um, with something more amorphous like the value of public space. I mean, there's just, there's lots of off-book stuff, right? I mean, there's the, there's the, um, I mean, there's, there's on-book stuff, which you can quantify and maybe tax. Like if you have uh, this many more floors, it's going to require this much more water or this much more sewer, and we can do a traffic study and we could adjust a property tax or a use tax somehow based on, on, on that and maybe require a development fee, even a, you know, a development impact fee on, on that basis. And there's, but there's lots of, lots of like off book stuff, which is also in terms of costs and benefits, right? So if we build this tall building, there won't be a vacant lot here. Or if we build it a little bit taller than the ordinance says, there'll be more people here. The building's more likely to succeed. There'll be more people shopping at nearby shops. Tax, you know, tax revenues will be higher. Uh, people will become more educated. So we're more likely to get a, uh, uh, um, a new innovation springing up in this area because you've got more random interactions because you just have more people and all the benefits of density, right? You know, like yeah. the, the developer is the one who's, de- who's delivering uh, those benefits of density potentially. But on the other hand, you've got these costs in terms of, well, if you build this building here in this way, um, uh, it, th- that place can't be a park. It can't be other things which might have more open space. So there are all these, and, and so maybe muddling through with negotiation is the best way of dealing with that. But if like, if we're approaching it as like, I don't know, dispassionate scholars, I think it's, you know, maybe recognizing that a strict cost benefit framing is just that and that there are other possible framings would be, would be helpful here. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. And I guess that for me, the bigger question when it comes to Popos is like I mentioned at the beginning, like, so they're exclusionary, they have all these problems, they have a democracy deficit, but do we still get, and I don't know who we is, but right, like does society, does the immediate community get some benefit from them? Like, should, is this something cities should be doing at all? Or are they completely worthless? Like are the harms of these spaces outweighing any benefit they do provide? Are they just providing a benefit to the private building developers and their private tenants, going back to a point Joe made at the beginning, right? Um, Or do members of the public get some benefit here 
uh, to the extent that it makes sense. And I, I don't know. And so, uh, you know, my sort of conclusion in the paper is, I think moving forward, this is not something cities should be focusing on because I don't think they've been successful overall. But at the same time, we're stuck with them, right? Until many of these spaces are torn down or rebuilt, we're stuck with them. So are there ways we can make them better? And that's where I think we, we can. You know, there are things we can do to make them better. Um, but in the sort of broader picture of should we have them at all, I think the answer is probably no going forward. I'm much more optimistic because and, and part of that is driven by I think we've talked about it on the show before when we talk about the coffee shop like uh, near near us. Like there's a space which is a parking lot now, which would be so awesome. It's kind of a shared public space where people eat and drink and it's surrounded by restaurants and and, and you know, you just look at it and you can see the possibilities for the space. But but the private actors because they 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 each need parking and you know there's this like tragedy of the anti-commons going on which is preventing mm-hmm. private parties from getting there and the public could play a really great role in kind of breaking that logjam and enabling them to cooperate much better so in, in a way i'm like more optimistic that the popo model the model of working with a developer at the time a development goes in and using this even if it is artificial scarcity to to extract like some design changes that open up new possibilities for either third places of this kind or third places of that kind, like that could be a really positive thing that can improve the design of what will be a pretty long-term built environment there, right? And I'm really interested in in your suggestions for how to make these better, not because I think we're stuck with them, but because I think, they, boy, they could be a really great way of of creating new kinds of spaces Although I'm concerned, right, about cities, like, because the, 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 the purchase of these things is off books, uh, saying, well, we already have a bunch of public space and therefore we don't need this traditional public park. Yeah, and I, right. And I think that's one of the concerning things is, is to the extent cities are doing that, that's problematic. Um, but yeah, in terms of my, my suggestions, I mean, I think there's a few things. So from a legal perspective, I think some of the things we've already talked about, right, that there should be you know, ordinances that more specifically talk about design and use. And as I mentioned, some cities are getting better about having stronger design requirements for these spaces. So, you know, requiring um, large signage, directing people to these spaces, saying this is a public space, you members of the public are allowed to be here. You know, I think that sort of knowledge is a huge part of it, like making people aware of these spaces and, and their rights of access you know, require, requiring inclusionary physical design or inclusionary architecture. So prohibiting things like gates and fences around them um, to the extent they are inside, making sure there are windows, you know, that, that, um, that engage the space with the street so that people can see it's a public space. Um, prohibiting them, as I said, on upper stories or inside build, like uh, behind, requiring access through a, a security gate. Like, I don't think that should be permitted. And then again, having use uh, use requirements that go through some sort of public process, like Joe was talking about. So having public participation in the the creation of rules of use for these spaces, um, or if the rules are going to change, or if the design of the space is going to change, having the public involved in that part. Uh, from a sort of courts perspective, you know, I think because because these spaces are becoming more common, and and even as we were talking about earlier, even bec- because malls are becoming our more predominant third spaces, you know, maybe revisiting the state action doctrine and moving back toward a more um, broad conception of what state action is, especially when it comes to to these public-private hybrids. And then finally, again, I think there's a huge role for norms here. So people uh, acting as norm entrepreneurs in these space, I think, can go a long way. So it's not, maybe we don't all need to be going in and doing Balinese chanting rituals, but pushing the boundaries of these spaces um, talking to the security guards about the fact that they're public, using them in such a way 
that we as members of the public claim them as our own instead of spaces that are, you know, feel truly private. Uh, so again, I, I think there are things we can do. And that's sort of the, you know, I use the, the term of the framing of publicization in the paper and sort of this idea of viewing these not as, as privatized public spaces, but as publicized private spaces. So, so, you know, relishing in the fact that, hey, this is a, a private space that, you know, without the city's intervention of creating this popos would have been purely private. Uh, the private owner would have complete rights of exclusion. But because it's been publicized, I, as a member of the public, have rights here. So let me explore those rights. Let me let me um, push those rights and let me sort of um, try to change the way others see these spaces, too. So, Sarah, if we look at this on the front end instead of the instead of the back end, the litigation end, and, and I'm just thinking, like, if I'm a if I'm running a city, I'm on the city council or something, and I just want to know what the best practices are here. Um, yeah, how about this? How about thinking of doing uh, taking my popo program, whatever it is, and, and changing it so that uh, the city will acquire an easement or alternatively, the city will keep a list of approved nonprofits, local nonprofits, and, and, and the developer will have to transfer an easement to them. And so these, these, uh, the boards of the, uh, or, or, or the uh, c- committees, if it's, if it's in the city will basically hold the, the right to make rules for access and, and the nature of access. Um, and, but may, may defer to the private organization in, in administering these rules and, and kind of filling them out. Uh, the private uh, landowner in, in filling those rules out. But I, I'm kind of thinking in terms of like performance standards, like every year these uh, these nonprofits or this or the city committee would kind of review, well, how is this space doing? What are some problems? You know, come and, come and tell us. They'll talk to the private owners. They'll talk to any citizens who've tried to access the space. And then they can kind of change the rules. Why don't we have this sign? Why don't we do that? Because the, the easement holder would be empowered to do that, would be empowered to make the space work according to um, in, according to the purposes of the space as maybe outlined in the original easement or the original agreement. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's the missing piece, right, is some, some, ex, um, some ex-ante agreement about what purposes are and some ex-post nonprofit governing board uh, which works with the private developer to, to realize those purposes and to, and to make sure it's performing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, again, part of the reason the city's like these is because they don't have the money or the staff to be doing this work themselves. Um, and so to the extent that the private developers are funding the folks in the nonprofit or, 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 you know, the government, um, to be able to, to have the time to engage in these sort of practices in all of these spaces. Um, I I think that's great. But again, I feel like the, the government is going to want the funding because it's going to say, Hey, half the reason we created this model is because we don't have the capacity to, we barely have the capacity to keep up with our existing public parks, right? I, I do think the feed, feedback as an institutional mechanism to, to make some way to have feedback that helps this institution work the way that it uh, should, the way that people intend it, um, is, is critical. And you're right, nothing's free. <laughs> and so uh, ha- to having the money to stand up that institutional feedback loop uh, yeah, that's it's got to that's got to be taken into account as well. Um, but it does seem like it's um, the kind of set it and forget it. Right. Like one, yeah. one one thing I kept thinking of as I was reading this was our, our conversation with Jessica Owley about her her going back and looking at conservation easement. Oh, right, um, right. Stuff and how that actually. Yeah. And in a way, this is like privately owned public conservation spaces. 
Yeah. Um, so you've got popsies or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and like in a way, that's that's also part of this overall picture. Um, and and there, the lack of a feedback loop was meant they weren't really performing as well as they could be. And that was set up. I mean, according to the model I just mentioned, right, where there actually <laughs> right. is someone yeah. who holds those easements and, and, and her criticism is, boy, someone's not doing their job. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think the the I think the question is a really important one, which is how do you get an effective feedback loop to make sure that over time this thing serves the role that it's intended to serve? But it's not an easy thing, apparently, not an easy thing to figure out uh, to get it to work well. No. And, and I, I actually just read, I think, you know, New York through through the years, New York has done some um, some studies where they actually go and look at these spaces and say, okay, how are they performing? And pretty much every time they've done these studies, the answer is not well, right? Like the, the spaces aren't performing well, they are exclusionary. And so I just read uh, some a city councilor in, in New York is proposing some changes, sort of some design-focused and, and use-focused changes um, to try to make their their popos there better. And so I think that's that's what we need, right? We need that sort of feedback. We need cities to see when these are not working and then sort of take some of these suggestions to heart and think about, okay, what can we do? And, and, and as you said, right, to, to keep going back and making sure their changes are having an effect because if they're not, you know, we need more changes. Well, thank you for joining us, Sarah. This has been amazing. Oh, it's always great to chat with you guys. I miss you. I know. It's, you too. it's yeah. never enough. It's never enough. We're going to see each other <laughs> at a conference soon, right? You going to this yeah. next one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Alps? Yeah. 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 That's a great place. What a great group of people. Well, I'm not going to that. You should talk. All you have to do is all you have to do is write something on law property or society. Oh, okay, cool. You're a property guy, Joe. There's yeah. intellectual property people there. Okay. Well, there you go. And and we'll, we'll see you in in Belgium. Or I guess it's technically Maastricht is in the Netherlands, Maastricht. but it's right on the border. It's right on the yeah. border. <laughs> in fact, there was a great there was a great episode of the Weeds studying the university there. Really? Because they have uh, be, be, and marijuana laws and the effect of marijuana on cognition. Oh, that's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. Be, because the 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 Netherlands kids had access to the coffee shops and could buy uh, could buy weed legally. And the, but the I guess the um, Belgian kids couldn't do that. And they, right. they and they wound up doing better or something. Or, yeah. 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 Wait, who did the Netherlands or the Bel- Belgian kids? The kids who did not smoke weed did better than the kids, <laughs> oh, than, than okay, the kids who okay. did. Right. Not the most surprising outcome right. for a study, I think. But. And apparently, it was a pretty robust study. Like you can, like immediately, you're thinking, "Oh, selection of venue." You're thinking, you know, but but it turns out that maybe they controlled for that. <laughs> you know, when you hear about studies online, you know, when you hear about studies, like it's obvious the ways that the study could suffer from sure. problems, right? Sure, sure. And, yeah. But but nonetheless, people like. A knee-jerk reaction is to assume that the authors didn't think about what you thought about in the first 10 seconds of reading about the study. <laughs> and sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, great to talk to you, Sarah. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks, guys.